spooks and ghosts and ghosts and goblins, we have a horror story today. Alien bomb. Bomb? Oh, yeah. Was it a bomb? <laughs> it exploded. It exploded. But I mean, like, my car could explode. I wouldn't call it a bomb. I would. Only if you do it deliberately. What makes something that explodes a bomb? It explodes. But I mean, like, okay, so if if I if I take a hot coffee pot and I put it in cold water accidentally and it explodes, because it will, would you call that a bomb? I guess it explodes with technolo- technology. That's but what I call were invented, bomb. Bombs were invented <laughs> before technology. All you have to do is pack a bunch yeah. of... I think a bomb has to be something intentional. I disagree. I think a bomb has to be something that you blow up because you want it to blow up. What if you what if you accidentally set a bomb? Then it's a bomb. Is it not a bomb anymore? <laughs> if, we ac- if okay, if you if someone invents a bomb, if someone creates a bomb and you're like you're like I have this bomb and then you accidentally <laughs> touch the button on the side and it explodes and kills a bunch of people. Yes, you still <laughs> exploded a bomb. <laughs> but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say you bombed a place. I would say you accidentally set off a bomb or you unintentionally bombed a place, but you weren't like a bomber. Now, if you have a device that is explosive, but it's not created to be a bomb, but it, you know it's explosive and you do something to it that causes it to explode for per, on purpose, I would say you've bombed a place, but you didn't use a bomb. Wrong. <laughs> I would say you used something else as a bomb you've turned uh, you've turned something into a bomb it becomes a bomb once you use it to explode a place okay but it's not we don't know if what he had in his hands well we don't think what he had what the character referring to had was a bomb it wasn't he didn't create a bomb he had it was something else that he used as a bomb Mm -hmm. but it was still a bomb in that moment I feel like I'm a bomb and I'm exploding this podcast. I'm blowing up our blowing up our spot. So I don't know how that expression means. Um, are you ready to talk a little bit about a little bit about the autopsy by Michael Shea? Yeah. All right, here we go. I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And it's Del Toro it's time. It's Del Toro time. So off, so wrong, so not together. It was like you were. It's like you're, parasite. It's like you are saying it with someone else. Like there is another person in your room doing a podcast with you. Um, Maybe there their, is. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> and our today's mystery reader is. Who can kill a child? Me. <laughs> Dr. Winters stepped out of the tiny Greyhound station and into the midnight street that smelt of pines and the river, though the street was in the heart of the town. But then it was a town of only five main streets in breadth, and these extended scarcely a mile and a half along the rim of the gorge. Deep in that gorge through the river ran, its blurred roar flowed perfectly distinct between the banks of dark shop windows. The station's window showed the only light, save for a luminous clock face several doors down, and a little neon beer logo two blocks farther on. When he had walked a short distance, Dr. Winters set his suitcase down, pocketed his hands, and looked at the stars, thick as cobblestone in the Black Gulf. That was me. That was me, reading a book, reading a book to you. Was it like you were a child again? No. Oh, I thought you died for a second. You were all like, <laughs> you were all like collapsed forward, and like I couldn't see the rest of your face. There you go. <laughs> I didn't want that to be the last way I saw you. 
<laughs> hey, everybody. This is uh, The Dark Descent. Uh, the next story in The Dark Descent by David G. Hartwell. This week, we are covering what again? The Autopsy. By? Mark Shea. <laughs> Michael Shea. Michael the Shea. Auto- Michael Shea. <laughs> yes. Uh, what can you tell? Okay, I'm... No, normally I would I would make a joke about how little you know about the author, but I'm actually I actually want to skip doing that because uh, Michael Shea died about six years ago, but his death is still pretty fresh for a lot of people. Uh, you you uh, you still read things from writers who are mourning the loss of Michael Shea. Mm-hmm. It, like it really hit it really hit the sci-fi fantasy world hard when he died. Um, in fact, just last year, uh, tribute a tribute book came out that featured some of his work, but also just people writing about how much they love Michael Shea. Uh, it was, it's, it was quite a, quite an outpouring. He had a huge effect on the sci-fi fantasy community. He wasn't really like a, a Bradbury or an Asimov who wrote like a thousand stories and who everyone's heard of and who've had a million adaptations of their work. Uh, he's still like to your average reader, kind of a relative unknown, but to People in the sci-fi fantasy world, he was huge. He was a presence. Uh, He got his start in the 1970s. Uh, 1973, he published A Quest for Symbolists. He had had read um, Jack Vance's dying Earth novel, The Eyes of the Overworld, in Juneau, Alaska. The story goes in a hotel uh, lobby. He had just picked up this novel and read it. And then, like, he was like, I really like this book. I'm going to write some fanfic. And so he wrote this, but he, so he just sat down and wrote an entire novel set in this world. And then he was like, what do I do? What do I do with it now? Well, I guess I'll just submit it for publication. So he did. And he, so he, he submitted it to Daw Books and they showed it to Jack Vance. They were like, this guy wrote a novel set in your world. And Vance was like, A, this is awesome. B, go ahead and publish it. C, I don't want any credit. D, this is an official sequel to my work. Until I say otherwise, this is the official sequel. So, like, Michael Shea, like, did the, had the ultimate fanfic dream. He wrote a piece of fanfiction that the author was like, cool, this is canon now. And it was, nice. ca- it was the canon follow-up to The Eyes of the Overworld, A Quest for Symbolists. Until uh, years later, uh, uh, Jack Vance actually did write his own follow-up, so it fell out of canon. But it's still, like, people are just like, yeah, this is a great, a great novel. And uh, so Shea went on to, uh, uh, to write just... A ton of, not a ton, but like a, a handful of super respected works. His big was Nift the Lean uh, in 1982, which won the World Fantasy Award uh, and sort of started this whole like the Nift the Lean series. Uh, and that was that was like fantasy. And when you think of Michael Shea's fantasy, it's more like, it's less like J.R.R. Tolkien and more contemporary. Like it's still set in like fantasy worlds, but with like a sort of a darker edge, a more cynical edge. He wrote a lot about like thieves and scoundrels and like that side of fantasy it wasn't all about like like what you think of like high fantasy uh and then uh in 1982 i think he wrote the color out of time as a sequel to the color out of space and that really kicked off his uh his like him delving into the worlds of lovecraft and him taking lovecraft's milieu and setting it among kind of real people uh lovecraft didn't really write about human beings he wrote about characters who just sort of like sort of like dawdled through his stories because he wasn't really big into like emotions and stuff and shay was like i'm going to get into psychology not only of the main characters but also of these creatures these these i don't want these creatures to be unknowable in the sense that we don't know what their motives are i want 
their motives to be completely just out there and horrific and horrible. And I'm not going to pull any punches with the gruesomeness. I'm not going to pull any punches with the stuff that makes you squirm in your seat. I'm going to make you feel everything. But also, I'm not going to, I'm not doing this just to get off on on the horror of it. I want you to really feel stuff when I'm right. Like, as far as I can tell from what everyone wrote, wrote about him, um, he was uh, just this fantastic guy. Uh, when he died, his wife wrote, his wife Linda wrote, it is apparent upon tracing Shay's, uh, wait, no, that's the wrong one. She wrote, he touched so many as a writer, as an English teacher, and as an immaculately honest and kind man. For those lucky enough to have known Michael, he radiated enthusiasm, wit, and laughter. A self-proclaimed hyperboliker, his awe of the universe so naturally shone forth through his love of language. He was conversant in Spanish, French, and German, but loved and respected English most of all. Without effort and at the drop of a hat, he'd recite full poems from Thomas Eliot Swinburne and Shakespeare his favorite. A wordsmith himself, Michael could not help but relish and convey the music of the words he read or recited. Michael published his first novel, A Quest for Symbolists, in 1974, and for all the years that I knew him, he wrote almost every day. Novels, short stories, and his first love poetry poured out of him through the very last day of his life. Some thought of Michael as reclusive, when in fact he was just old-fashioned, a writer's writer. Once a piece was perfect, he wanted to set it aside, forget it, and begin the next project. Michael was a loving father of two and my husband and best friend for 35 years, we will miss his gentle spirit and the window to the world that this generous man held open so widely for us all. And I think that's just, I think that sort of sums up everything I read about it was that he was just this awesome guy who, uh, who didn't write a whole lot. He didn't publish a whole lot, but what he did, people were just like, Mwah. and this collection, the dark descent, which contains the autopsy, a few people cited as like how they discovered Michael Shea. So, uh, what can you tell us about the autopsy? It's spooky. <laughs> yep. What kind of story is it? Sci-fi, horror. Mm -hmm. But it starts off as neither of those things. Does it not? I mean, it starts off kind of as like a police procedural. Yeah. Yeah, like it, it, yeah, it, it, almost, it almost seems like you're watching like an episode of CSI or something. Like here's the, you have this guy who's a coroner who's been called in to do autopsies on these 10 bodies. And because mm -hmm. of, as you said, a bomb was set off and mm -hmm. and blowed him up but good but he's doing the do you, do you remember why he's doing the autopsies for like who he's doing them for he's doing them for the sheriff right but he's doing them or for no, an insurance for... company right yeah yeah he's been given the task of proving that these how is it that these guys didn't die on the job because it was in a mine they died mm -hmm. because of the bomb so he has to he's been tasked with discovering so that the insurance company doesn't have to pay out uh, they don't have to pay the families and say it was because it wasn't their fault. So they want to say that these guys died as a result of a bomber and not as a result of the mine collapsing on them. Uh, and so that's kind of his job. Can I just can I just say it? Can I just say it? Yeah. Screw insurance companies. Screw insurance companies. Screw all of them. Yep. Yes. I mean, unless unless they're like, I was trying to think of like a good funny insurance company that we would all really need but that doesn't exist and i can't actually think of one i was gonna say love insurance <laughs> but that sounds like i don't know what that would even be like if you get a broken heart like they'll pay out but then they'd probably you'd probably have to prove that you had a broken heart and that would be terrible so so yeah screw all insurance companies yep yep so yeah so it's this guy his name is uh his name is dr winters and he has something living inside him do you remember what it is Cancer. Yeah, yeah, stomach cancer that he talks to. Mm -hmm. And does that come into play really in the story? No, but it it shapes his behavior in ways that lead to I... interesting moments in the story. How would you say it shapes? It shapes his, his behavior. 
it shaped his behavior towards the 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 alien mm. in the end there. Mm-hmm. Like how so? Well, the ending is him talking to it or communicating with it. Yeah, it's it's we start off with he's this guy and he know he's he has stomach cancer and he's dying of stomach cancer, uh, but he hasn't told mm-hmm. anyone. And so he he yeah he has this sort of like not a dialogue because the cancer doesn't talk back, but like a monologue that he's sort of like he's just always talking to the cancer and he's he's kind of comfortable now with it being in his body. It's his it's this sort of passenger that he knows is going to be the, the the death of him one day, but uh that he's just come to terms with, and so he he has like a relationship with it. And it's interesting because cancer can be seen as a parasite but this story ends up being about an actual parasite that he isn't cool with because the cancer at least lets him be who he is i guess Mm -hmm. and uh but so okay so he gets assigned the task so there's like a there's also a serial killer so wait tell me about this serial killer talking about alan joe allen allen if you're a fan of jurassic park 3 you'll get that reference alan there's Are we mo- talking about Alan, Joe Allen? I think so. There's a moment the in Jurassic killer. Park. There's a moment in Jurassic Park three where the character Alan Grant has a nightmare and he's on he's on a helicopter and he looks over and there's a velociraptor in the helicopter with him. And the the velociraptor looks straight at him and goes, Alan. And then he wakes up. And it's just a shot of a velociraptor saying the word Alan. That is probably the greatest thing that's ever been committed to film. Um if you haven't seen it, I strongly suggest you look up Alan from Jurassic Park 3. So, I'm sorry, what were you saying? Are we talking about Joe Allen? The serial killer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But how does that tie into this? Well, he's the one who has the the fake bomb. Fake bomb. It's a real bomb, though, because it blows up. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I'm going to shut this down. <laughs> so That's the end of the podcast, everybody. <laughs> So people have been turning up dead in this mining town, this mining community, and uh, they've they've pretty much narrowed it down to this one guy. Is 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 he a serial killer or is he uh, infested with the parasite? I think he's infested with the parasite. I believe that's the case. I think it's is it it's the, is it the case? It's a, it's very... I think so because otherwise otherwise what the hell is he doing? Right, because the parasite infested this one guy. Brought it to this town, changed its name. Uh, but uh, it, the parasite retains use when the. Okay, so <laughs> we're going to get to this, but this serial killer is in this town. The police corner him, or they find out who he is. He works at the mine. When he's coming out of the mine, he sees the police car. Meanwhile, the police, one of the police officers, has gone to the guy's house and found this weird sphere, this like metal sphere that he doesn't know what it is, and put it in the cruiser. When this guy, Alan, Alan, when Alan comes out of the mine, he makes a beeline to the cruiser, grabs the sphere, runs into the mine, and then presumably sets off the sphere. It blows up, kills nine of the guys in the mine, including Alan himself. Alan, including Alan. So, so, serial killer is dead. That's what this autopsy is. And I think, I think, well, why don't you tell us how this alien ties into all this? (laughs) Oh, uh, it just—it did it come down in a meteor? Did it? I think so. There was a meteor storm, and that's when they discovered that Sykes was gone. Sex? Sykes. Who's Sykes? Or, or Skies? Alan. What was his name originally? Sykes. His original name. I'm gonna read. Hold on. I'm gonna switch over to my. It's Sykes. Sykes. Alan Sykes. Yes. That's no, what they discovered. What are you talking about? Who's Alan? Joe Allen. Who's Sykes? 
Sykes is Alan originally. Oh. That's his now, original name. Right. He has two names. His real name is Sykes. He's been going by Joe Allen mm-hmm. in this town. I know all this. I'm just making you work hard. That's not true. I don't actually remember some of this. Um, this is a this is an interesting story because a lot of it is a monologue by this creature at the end, uh, mm-hmm. and that and and it gets very technical and kind of trippy uh, when the, when the, when the creature begins monologuing. Right. So so our main character. Our main character, Dr. Winters, uh, who is apparently good friends with this with this sheriff, is conducting these autopsies alone. And he begins autopsying just at random to some of the guys uh, trying. De- his whole goal is to not. He's like, I'm dying. I'm, I don't I'm not going to do anything for this insurance company. No matter what I find, I'm just going to say that the, that they died from the collapse. They died from the mining collapse that had nothing to do with the bomb or like they weren't killed by the bomb. They were killed by the mine collapse. So he's just like. Sure. What are they going to do to me? My boss will try to fire me, but I don't care. I'm dying. Like, I don't care what happens. So he's actually, he's this really good guy. And he finally gets to one of the bodies and he cuts it open and he finds out that it has been like drained of blood. Is that it? There's like a hole in it and the hole goes to the heart. And he realizes mm-hmm. that the lungs have been like collapsed from, they have, they've been drained of blood. The heart has no blood. And he's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And he figures out that the two, there's two bodies that have had this happen to them, and they were sandwiched. And sandwiched between them was this guy Sykes, the the, the presumed killer. And that's mm-hmm. when he sort of starts piecing together that they were drained after the collapse by this guy. Somehow mm-hmm. he drained them of blood while he was lying. There. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Yeah, probably. Yes, probably. Yes. Yes. It says, what was this world he lived in? Surely in a lifetime he had not begun to guess. To feed in such a way, there was horror enough in this alone. But to feed thus in his own grave, how had he accomplished it, leaving aside how he had fought suffocation long enough to do anything at all? How was it to be comprehended, a greed that raged so hotly it would glute itself at the very threshold of its own destruction? That last feast was surely in his stomach still. Right. And so he's going to try to cut open Sykes. To see if he can figure that out, but before he can do that, what happens? Um, he he gets up. <laughs> yes, he sure does. Sykes gets up. Uh, we have this. So the the it's it's not coming through in our conversation, but the the story is it starts off as very much a like a serial killer story, like a a crime story, yeah. and then it goes into body horror and gore because he doesn't pull any punches on the descriptions of these autopsies or what happens to these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you start, and then when the body wakes up, you're like, is this a vampire story? Like a, a zombie story? Like what's happened? Like, it seems like it's like, oh, it's vampire. Like it's some sort of, like, I was thinking um, uh, the strain, like those yeah. vampires that are more like, like monsters, like creatures. And they have like- That are tongues. literally parasites. Yes. Uh, and so I was like, "Oh, is this a va- is it a vampire tale?" Uh, but then we discover that it's it's worse than that. It's a <laughs> it's a it kind of an invasion of the body snatchers thing. But where like the body snatchers also like feed off of of human blood and flesh and meat, because if he was he was killing people and draining them of their blood, but also chopping up the bodies, like butchering them. And he comes out, and we find out what's going on through this creature's 
monologue and it's a monologue like there are any young yeah. young actors at home looking for a great a uh, a great performance piece i suggest the autopsy by michael shea the creature's monologue it's kind of like when the frankenstein monster monologues and it's just like here here's everything that's going on in my head mm-hmm. yeah so what what tell me about this monster uh it seems to be like a well, it's an alien some kind of like worm creature mm-hmm I hate it. It's kind of this gelatinous. Is my worst it's like this. Yeah. It's, it's gloopy. Gloopy. Uh, and it's trying to come across as weak and unassuming. Mm-hmm. Um, the doctor's like, "So you uh, you killed these people?" And the thing's like, "No, no, 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 no. I just, I just hid inside this body. Please help me." Mm-hmm. And the doctor's like, "No, <laughs> you killed these people." And you ate them. Yeah. And the creature's like, no, they were already dead. I only ate them because they were already dead. And the doctor says, no, you killed them all, including your tool, this man. What are you? Yeah. And what is he? Gross is what he is. So what makes this alien interesting is that it inhabits the body, but it's not doing it just for sustenance. It's doing Mm -hmm. it. Because it loves to, like, it feeds off of our fear and anxiety and the fact, like, it has to terrorize us while it's inside us. Like, the people's, people are well aware of what is going on the whole time this thing is in their body. It's just like their minds are shut away kind of in the back and they just sort of have to experience everything this creature is doing. And then he makes them actually feel what it's, what he's doing. Like... It's torture. He's torturing the people he's inside, and that's part of his, like, he kind of gets off on that. Mm-hmm. And it's horrible. Yeah. So the creature attacks him and knocks him out. Mm-hmm. Creature attacks him. Then there's a lot of stuff that happens. They have this little showdown in the in the autopsy room, and the creature straps him down. He He straps him down so he can't move, but he leaves, like, the guy's paralyzed except for his left arm and he can like move his head, I think, because the creature's like, I'm going to now put myself inside you. But in order for the for me to like sort of do a systems check, I have to leave your hand, like part of your like your hand and like some other stuff unparalyzed just so I can like run some tests when I get in. And the creature then lays down on the gurney next to him, cuts himself open with a scalpel and lifts the parasite out of the body of Sykes and sends it on over to to our our hero. But it takes a while, you yes. see, because it has to move slowly. It does have to move slowly. And he also cuts open our, our good doctor, um, mm-hmm. who can't feel it, fortunately, because he's completely paralyzed and desensitized. But he says I to thought, the... What? I thought that... Uh, he cut himself first. The monster, or cut maybe himself first. no. Okay, I misread that. So, so we're we're in this. We have this interesting conundrum because the creature is a parasite inside this body, and it's controlling this body. But as soon as the creature removes the parasite from its body completely, it won't be able to control that body anymore. And so, it has mm-hmm. to kind of do everything. While it's in this compromised position, and that's where, and that's where, uh, uh, Doctor, uh, I can't think of his name. Winters. And that's where Doctor Winters. W- 
that's where Dr. Winters gets his idea of what he can do personally to save, uh, if not humanity, at least stall this. Because the creature makes it clear that he's not the only one of his kind. And mm-hmm. he's not the only one who's a coming. Like this is this is this could be a full on invasion. Uh, we don't really know. We don't we don't get the full story. But uh, so what is Doctor Winter's big big like? What does he do? Do you remember what he does? He butchers himself. He but he has to do it at a like the timing has to be right. And how does he get the scalpel? Uh, like that's the big that's the big like reveal. I don't know. In the splits, there's like a like a very brief moment of time after the parasite is removed from the body that the body regains Sykes's actual original consciousness, and mm-hmm. Sykes like moves enough so that he can hand the scalpel over to Doctor Winters, and the creature, the parasite, through this whole while it is outside of a body is now like blind and deaf it can't it can only just seek its new its new occupant it can't it's new like uh, its new body it can't do anything and so while the creature is working its way into winter's like the like the 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 hole that it made in winter's in winter's abdomen winter's cuts his own throat like basically his like his artery he like just starts mm-hmm. cutting away he stabs out his own eyes he stabs out his, his ears. ears. Yeah. Which he can't feel, fortunately. Yeah. And and it ends. Um oh and he writes he writes a uh he writes a, a message in blood for anyone who finds mm-hmm. his body. Do you know what that was do you remember what that one was? Mind parasite from Alan in me. Cut all till find one five hundred or one five hundred, uh fifteen hundred GM mass nerve fiber. Where does it say that? says when he had done the message read when he had done the message read that yeah when he had done are you kidding me what okay so i read this story in my digital copy of the weird by jeff and ann vandermeer in the weird it goes when he had done the message read alien in me cut kill not mind parasite fm alien in me cut all till find 1500 it says alan it doesn't say alien it says alan oh fine it still doesn't say that uh it's a completely different message it's a completely different message everything else is the same except for that part everything else is the same so as far as i can tell for some reason uh that that's different and i don't know why i don't know why jeff and ann vandermeer please explain the difference in the two versions of the autopsy to us this isn't the first time this has happened on this show no it's not no it's not uh it's the version of michael shay's the autopsy in uh david g hartwell's the dark descent is different from the version of 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 the autopsy that's in the weird by jeff and ann vandermeer um and jeff and ann vandermeer are you know they're they are top-notch editors and top-notch uh uh collectors of well the weird so i'm going to assume let me see if i can find the beginning of this the autopsy see if it says anything in their book nope uh 
I am I'm just befuddled. I'm befuddled at the turn of events that this is that this is taken. Um but so he but he does leave a message. He 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 leaves a message uh but he in he, he as his mind is going that's when he uh stabs out his eye, stabs out his ears. Um and slashes his carotid artery so that the alien has no place to go. It's going to be stuck in his body now. It's not going to be able to control anything or see anything or hear anything. And hopefully people will come and just destroy his body. Um, but he does say to the parasite. Uh, I can't communicate with anyone either because he slashed his vocal cords. That's right. But he thinks to it. Uh, Welcome to your new house. I'm afraid there's been some vandalism. The lights don't work and the plumbing has a very bad leak. There are some other things wrong as well. The neighborhood is perhaps a little too quiet and you may find it hard to get around very easily, but it's been a lovely home for me for 57 years. And somehow I think you'll stay. And he has blood seeping out of his eyes, almost like tears. Uh, And, uh, oh, no, he's looking at a, he's looking at, He's looking. Yeah, he's looking at the body of of Sykes. He's not Joe looking Allen. at anything. Well, he's turned towards it, and it says the last his last moment before death was to smile. His last moment. So, uh, kind of a bittersweet end because the guy was going to die anyway. Mm-hmm. And his last act was to kind of like take down this mind robbing alien parasite. I wonder what the alien's reaction to everything that just happened was. I know. I wish we could at least get that. Because if it has to. If it if part of its feeding is on the torment of its victim, mm-hmm. well, the guy's dead now. Yeah, yeah. He he he. I've never seen a body snatcher scenario turn out this way. As well, the best way to get rid of a body snatcher is you just get rid of the body, even if it's your own. Mm-hmm. You make it so that it has no place to go. And I mean, I guess like alien, alien can kind of do that when they blast the alien out of the airlocks, like. That's kind of this. You're depriving it of its, of its every. It can't lay eggs and reproduce anymore if it's just out in the vacuum of space. That's really all you can do besides like incinerate mm-hmm. it. So, uh, but yeah, you don't usually get someone like sacrificing their own body in order to stop the alien like mind control parasite. I wish there had been a Star Trek where this had happened, where Kirk had had to like stab, stab out his own eyes. <laughs> where we're Somehow going. I don't think that would have flown in the Star Trek uh, community. Where we're going, we don't need eyes to see. Ah. That's from uh, uh, Event Horizon. Yeah, I remember that scene in Event ah, Horizon. Ah, he doesn't actually do that, but it'd be great if you actually saw Sam Neill stabbing out his own eyes with a with a with a scalpel. Um. Uh. Yeah. So that's a. It's a dark. It's a dark. It's a dark story. <laughs> it's a good one, though. It is. It is. Um. He's compared to Clive Barker. In the intro, in uh, in David Hartwell's intro, he says, Shay's cinematic effects compare favorably with such newer talents as Clive Barker. Newer talents when this was written, of course. Uh, colorful and unflinchingly clinical. And this story uses some of Lovecraft's conventions more effectively than any other contemporary horror writer. Shay has been growing in strength for more than a decade and belongs already to the company of the best writers in horror today. Uh, of course, that was written in the 1980s. Uh, but Jeff and Ann Vandermeer... Why are you why are you the grudge facing me? <laughs> I was yawning. 
It says, uh, the, uh, he, uh, Jeff and Ann Vandermeer write, The Color Out of Time is similarly an homage to H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space that has its own unique appeal. At the short length, Shea has written several masterpieces, including the Autopsy, a Hugo and Nebula Award finalist, uh, clinical, precise, humane, and terrifying. And uh, the, the Autopsy plays with the idea of demonic possession from a weird science fiction perspective. Um, and I, yeah, it is a, it's a possession narrative as well uh, and an exorcism narrative. Uh, it would be as if at the end of The Exorcist, Reagan had just exploded. <laughs> but I guess, no, wait, that is how The Exorcist ends. He brings the demon into his body and then he kills himself. He jumps out the window and that, mm-hmm. the demon doesn't have anywhere to live. Very The Exorcist. But uh, I do like that that the Vandermeers wrote uh, clinical, precise, humane, and terrifying. And it's that word it's that word humane that to me makes Michael Shade different than a lot of the splatterpunk writers who came out of the 1980s. The the people who were just writing shockingly gory horror stories for the sake of writing shockingly gory horror stories. Uh, because Michael Shade never forgets that he's supposed to be writing about that if you don't care about these characters, then there's just there's there's really very little meat. Uh, on on the story's bones, you've got to you you're not you're not going to hold the interest of many readers if if they don't care about the people. And I think he he really did well in making Doctor Winter a character that you just you cared about and you rooted for. Mm-hmm. So you think this was a good story? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it was better? Yeah. Do you think it was better or worse than uh than the last story we read? Well, this last story, I think. It, well, I the last story we read was really just nothing. There wasn't a lot in it. <laughs> How dare you? The last story we read was our about- entire our entire episode was about loose screws. I never finished watching it. <laughs> I never finished watching loose screws. I do find it interesting that in this episode we have not mentioned a single other movie, and in the last episode that was like the first thing we talked about, and then that's all we talked about. Yeah. Anyways, that's the story. It's great. I recommend it. It is very good. Um, but I think comparing it to the crowd is fair because like the crowd was written by a master of the craft, and it. Was it Ray Bradbury? And it was, uh, and it was a functional story with like a, a twist, but it wasn't bad by any means. There just no, wasn't a lot of substance. There wasn't, and it, it was what it was. It was just sort of a little episode, mm-hmm. and this was a short story with a twist. But even if the twist hadn't occurred, it was still a fascinating read. And like this was a character mm-hmm. who I was interested in, and this whole milieu was something that I found. Uh, just very, very captivating. And I liked the characters. I liked the sheriff. I liked that this guy, this small town sheriff, I liked that this this coroner was just going about his job, like doing his job, fighting cancer, that having cancer gave him this unique perspective on life and on in, things inhabiting your body. And that when, and when he when at the end, he died and I was actually sad about it. But then I was also happy that he got the final like F you to the to the creature. And I don't know. It's just it's a it's a it's a it's a nice it's a good, solid story. Uh, I totally agree yeah. with you. Solid story. Congratulations, Michael Shea. Your legacy is well deserved. Um, yeah. So uh, what's the next story on the docket? John Charrington's wedding. John Charrington's wedding. By Edith Nesbitt. Yes. Uh, Yeah, we have not read anything by Edith Nesbitt yet. People know Edith Nesbitt as a writer of children's fiction, but she also wrote horror stories and ghost stories. So, And this one's really short, so I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's like a 10-minute read. So so no complaints there because the autopsy was actually pretty long. It's a pretty good size. It's a a novella. You're going to sit and read it. It's going to take you a while. Um, 
Yeah, also, it's uh, it's twenty seven pages long. The Nesbit? No, the no. autopsy. I was gonna the say autopsy. the Nesbit's not that long. The Nesbit's like five pages long. Um, the Nesbit's six pages long. So, uh, if you're looking for Michael Shea's work, if you want to, if you want to read more of his stuff, the uh, the weird thing about several years ago, a bunch of his stuff was available uh, on Amazon as uh, as ebooks, and I was like, well, that's great. Uh, but now, now it's not like, it's just, it's gone. Um, but that's how I actually first read his stuff was I read fat face by Michael Shea. And like, I just purchased it for like 99 cents for buck 99. And now there's just not that much out there. You can buy a collection of his, uh, of his Lovecraftian writing of the stories set like in the Lovecraft universe on like as a digital book. Um, where is it? Oh, I can't even find it. Used to be there used to, he had a really famous book called Copping Squid, but that's long out of print. Uh, but yeah, so you can find his stuff. But otherwise, like if you're looking for the autopsy and other tales, if you're looking for poly polyphemus, any of his stuff that's not Lovecraft related, you're gonna have to buy it used, and you might end up paying like fifty bucks for a pocket paperback. You might end up paying a hundred and fifty bucks for a trade paperback just to get your hands on some of his stories because it's just weirdly out of print. And uh, and he has two books, The Extra and Assault on Sunrise, that are available. Those are his like last two novels. And they're part of the extra trilogy, which I don't think he ever finished. I think he only wrote the first two story books in it. There's a guy named Michael Shea who's also writing uh, uh, some tabletop gaming books, which is what I keep finding when trying to look for his stuff on Amazon. And it's getting real frustrating. Uh, Yes, there are two authors named Michael Shea. (laughs) Do not confuse it with the other Michael Shea. Demiurge. Demiurge is the is the the one that's available. The complete Cthulhu mythos tales. It's also uh, edited by S. T. Joshi. So somebody who knows their Lovecraft. But uh, I recommend getting into Michael Shea. His stuff is worth reading. Uh, I would love to get my hands on the Nift series just to see what his fantasy is like. I've never read his fantasy, but I think he's a I think he's a great guy. I think we are all the uh, we are all the lesser for him not existing in this world anymore. Uh, so next week, Edith Nesbit. And uh, what do you have on your plate? Anything fun coming up? No. <laughs> Not a thing. Uh, you have any D&D happening? Any Dungeons & Dragons? Hopefully. We didn't have it last weekend because it was Miles' girlfriend's birthday. Oh, Miles' girlfriend. I like her. She's nice. Hey, We Miles all met at the same time. Happy so. birthday, Miles' girlfriend. And many happy returns. Uh, still getting in the way of a good game. Um <sighs> I have other shows. I have Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bearcast. You can find that at berenstainbearcast.org. I have uh, I have Pizza Toast, a Babysitter's Club podcast, starting back up again this week. We're covering the 1990 Babysitter's Club series, uh, starting with Marianne and the Brunettes. And um, it's episode of the show. And I have... Uh, and I have... Uh, Click it cast, a Beverly Cleary podcast, which I'm, I haven't done in half of a year, but which we are picking up again so we can finish it off, me and my friend John McCoy. So if you like Beverly Cleary, that's also out there. I am so tired of doing podcasts that require me to read a lot of books. Hmm. It's just... We should get back to movies at some point. We should, although I was just like, it actually takes a lot longer to watch a movie than it does to read most of these stories, so... Yeah, but uh, movies. I know movies. Movies are fun. Movies are fun. I already I, I, have to talk about books in two of my four classes. 
Yep. And in fact, I'm going to be guesting on a podcast soon-ish in a few weeks. And I'm going to have to read another novel in order to in order to talk on it. Uh, going to be talking about the Wizard and Glass, the fourth Dark Tower book on a, on a friend's podcast. So I can't stop a reading. Can't stop reading. Uh, are we done? Are we done here? Yes. Thank yes, you to we're our done. thank you to our reader me for reading the book out loud. Uh, join us next time for Edith Nesbit. Send to, send to us your favorite Edith Nesbit tales. Send write to us on Twitter at Del Toro Time and tell us what your favorite Edith Nesbit stories. And uh, I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And we'll see you when it's Del Toro it's Time. It's Del Toro Time. So off. So wrong. <laughs> so not together. <laughs> not to me. Not to me.